Scripture reading today is this one verse. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. This is the word of the Lord. We are wrapping up a five-week series on walking through the letter of 1 John. And this letter is, is his kind of speaking to his beloved family. It is a, a letter full of affection. Uh, that language of dear children and dear friends uh, permeates the whole uh, of this letter. And when you read it, you, you get a, a deep and abiding sense that, that he really loved his people and, and he's trying to, to impart to them some encouragement, a, a level of encouragement as they are living life and, and quite honestly, as they prepare to live without him. He's writing this letter around 90 AD and he's heading towards, uh, the end of his life. Um, and, and really the end of, of that first generation of apostles and, and their witness among the people. And so this letter, this is, this is kind of like his final word to the community. And when we laid this out, we didn't know this was going to be my last Sunday. So don't try and make those connections. <laughs> As we walk through this text today, we're going to hear three parts, three different emphases that, that we're going to, to kind of sit with and, and listen to that, that really give us an understanding of what John's trying to say to his people with this, this last sentence in the letter. And the first is we're going to remember together that this whole letter, and especially this last part, is all a response to God's grace. And so we'll spend a little bit of time with that. We're going to notice how that there were some parallel stories uh, that unfold in Scripture, especially Pentecost Sunday, and, and how that how that kind of shapes what John's trying to say to his people here today. And finally, we'll we'll step into a way of living together, and how this points us towards a a way of living as God's people, a response to God's grace. You may recall that we started by talking about those first few verses in uh, chapter 1 and the start of chapter 2, and, and some of what's being said in there is, is this emphasis from John saying, I really saw Jesus. I really talked to him, and he really was God in the flesh, God with us. And part of what he says is this, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. A lot of times when we talk about worship and we enter into to worship in a, a Christian tradition, especially the Reformed tradition, we point towards the cross and our need for salvation and, and the need to be redeemed by God's grace. And John's writing this letter saying, we have been redeemed by God's grace in Jesus Christ. It's happened. And this then is how you respond to it. Notice the words there he wraps into this. He talks about fellowship, that, that sense of God's people being together and, and having community together, that, that sense that we're here with each other and for each other. But he adds a layer to it here, saying, my desire in, in teaching you these things and in writing to you right now is not only so that you experience fellowship with one another, but with God himself. 
sang that song earlier today, God himself is with us. It's one of the great promises of Scripture again and again. When God's people come up to a, a, a trial or come up to a place where, where things are new and different and unexpected, God often speaks to them with words of, do not be afraid, and follows it with, for I am with you. It's a repeated refrain. Even, even David picks up that on that in that famous psalm, Psalm 23, and he says, I'm not going to fear. I'm not going to fear even when I'm in that valley of death's shadow because you are with me. Fellowship with the Father through the Son, Jesus Christ. And so the whole thrust of, of what John's doing in this letter and even what he's saying in this last verse of keep yourselves from idols is caught up in this grand desire of God that we would fellowship with God, that we would have communion with God, just as we can have communion with each other, this sense of being in each other's presence. And God is saying again and again, what I've done through Jesus Christ on the cross and in raising him from the dead is open the door for you to have fellowship with me, that intimate communion with God, being made right with God becoming aware of God's presence. And so when we hear the command in this text, keep yourselves from idols, it's in the context of God's great desire that we would have, have this sense of presence with God and dwell with God. It adds this. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. In other words, what, what John's saying is, is, yes, God's at work among us, and he wants this for us, this communion and this presence with us, but he also wants it for the whole world. And we're being caught up in a story that's bigger than us. So as John writes to the church in Ephesians, and, and as we hear that here today, what we're hearing is God who is at work well beyond us and desiring that we be part of his story of making all things new through Jesus Christ. This command to keep ourselves from idols is caught up in God's mission, God's work of, of trying to redeem and restore the whole world. Earlier in chapter 5, John says these things, and this moves us a little bit more towards Pentecost. We're going to be moving towards the Spirit here. He's talking about God's love, and he says, in fact, this love for God, this is love for God, to keep his commands, and his commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. There's a gentleness in this that John's trying to communicate, that, that God is not a slave driver. He's not someone who's trying to, to beat things out of us or into us. He's inviting us, and it's a gentle invitation. Come this way. You will find life this way. Follow in the directions I'm giving you, and as you start to follow in those directions, you're going to experience an abundance of life that leads you to overcome all these trials in the world around you. For context, just remember that Ephesus was one of the imperial cities. 
It was one of those places where the Roman military had a large presence. It was one of those places where there was the grandeur of the Roman Empire and the leaders of the Roman Empire sometimes would travel through there. It was a place where there was trade routes crisscrossing the empire. So all sorts of of religious emphasis from all around the Roman Empire was there. And they had huge temples to other gods there, including Artemis. And, and the people in that city had experienced, while Paul was there, an uprising of the people who made idols in that city. Because, because the Christians, those who were learning to follow Jesus Christ, by throwing away their idols and quitting to participate in the temple worship, were actually impacting the economy of Ephesus, which is built around idol worship. So they're in this context that is hostile towards Christians. And they're hearing stuff of what's already happening in Rome where people are being tortured and Christians are being, being brought into, into the Colosseum. Some of that stuff is already happening and they're hearing about it. So when he says, you will overcome, for everyone born of God, overcomes the world, he's speaking of trials and sufferings that is really, really in their face. Stuff that they have started to experience and they know their brothers and sisters elsewhere are experiencing. It's not just some sort of casual, yeah, I had a rough day. It was life and death. And John's speaking to them. When we're caught up and we learn to follow Jesus Christ, we overcome the world, what the world offers to us. And then he adds this, and this is where he turns to the Spirit. He says, it is the Spirit who testifies in the midst of all these trials, in the in the midst of all the suffering, in the midst of the brokenness of the world, it is the Spirit who testifies to us because the Spirit is truth. And so part of what he's saying to us is, is God hasn't just rescued us in Jesus Christ for an eternity out there, but the Spirit has come close to us. And the Spirit's testimony points us to what Jesus Christ has done. And this is the testimony, what the Spirit's testifying to us, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. Hear that through the lens of people whose lives are being taken because of their faith. God's given us eternal life in Jesus Christ, which means the worst that the world can do and take our bodies and all of the brokenness that comes with that dying and that persecution, God has overcome already, and he's granted us eternal life. The persecution and the suffering of the early church would not be the end of the story. They would be caught up in God's presence in a new and rich way. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And so as John comes to this command, keep yourselves from idols, part of what he's saying is, look at all the good gifts God's given you already. Look at what God has done for you already in Jesus Christ and saving you from your sins and giving you this the Spirit who's with you and giving you the assurance of your salvation, his very presence with you here and now, you are not alone, sisters and brothers. As John says, my dear children, you're not alone. You are not on your own. Regardless of what you are facing right now, whatever those circumstances are, know this, that in the midst of them, God is still with you. And the keep yourself from idols command comes in the context of that assurance of God's grace. God has not forgotten about us. 
God has not abandoned us, but has sent his spirit to dwell with us. Now there's a richness of this intersection of being called to keep God's commands, to following God's ways, and the gift of the spirit. And I want us to see a, a parallel that happens with ascending and descending. And this this came out of a conversation Jerry Hovers and I were having a few weeks back, and, and he had me, he showed some things to me in the text I hadn't seen before, and so we started talking about it, and it's, it stuck with me. There's a parallel stories going on in Scripture. One is, is in Exodus 32, and that's where Moses is up on the mountain receiving God's commands. He's gone up to receive and be in the presence of God, and God's dwelling with his people and preparing to come to the tabernacle. And while Moses is up there getting the Ten Commandments, some of you may remember this, down below the people are waiting, and they decide they've waited long enough. And so they build some calves, some golden calves, and they invite everybody to worship the golden calves instead of worshiping God. So let's hear these two texts together. Moses ascends the mountain to God. The people wait for word from God. People get tired of waiting. And so they turn to idols. They want something tangible to see and say, this is the God who saved us. We need to be able to touch and see and control this God. And Moses descends the mountain of God. And he walks in while they're having this big festival to these idols. And what happens? About 3,000 people died that day. People have turned to idols, and it leads to destruction within the community so that people end up dying. There's this animosity and this distance between God and his people, so much so that the people are like, we can't come nearer to God. Moses, you go and intercede on our behalf. We want nothing to do with God. we got to keep a distance from him. There's a fear of God that sets in, and it's all tied to that middle part that the people got tired of waiting for God, and so they turned to idols. On Pentecost Sunday... A similar pattern happens, but there's a difference in the middle. Jesus ascends to God's throne, God's presence. He's up there, and what he says to his disciples is, go into Jerusalem and wait. So the disciples gather in an upper room, and they wait for God. And while they're waiting, instead of turning to idols, they pray together. It talks about them coming together in that upper room to pray together and fast and wait. And so they wait together in that room, waiting for God and wondering, when's God going to show up? And they, they wait. And then the Spirit descends from God's throne. This is Moses coming down the mountain. The Spirit comes down. And this time, when the Spirit comes down, instead of judgment, comes new life. And the Pentecost story ends with this statement. About 3,000 people were saved that day. There's parallels happening here. And part of it hinges on how, what do you do in the waiting? What do you do in that space when you don't know if God's actually going to follow through on his promises? And John, as he's writing to his people... He's drawing on this whole biblical tradition and the, the story of God's people, and he's saying to them, in the waiting period, in that space where you're wondering if God's forgotten about you, in that space where, where it seems like 
things just aren't moving quick enough and you're wondering if God's actually going to show up and deliver you, don't turn to idols. Pray. Gather together. Seek his face. Because when you do, you will see God provide. You will see his life show up in abundance. Follow that Pentecost story. Not the story that happened way back when. Receive God's grace. God wants to give you life, and he will do it. But wait. Be patient. Turn to him. Gather in prayer together. And these stories, this story of God's people shapes and informs what do we do when we're in those waiting spaces? What do we do when we don't know what comes next? And we pause and we wait. We pray together. We seek God's face together and trust that God will fulfill his promise and send the Spirit. And when he does, it will be more than we have asked or could have imagined. And then to a way of living. We get to the command, keep yourselves from idols. The keep yourselves, there is a, a, a particular word. It's different than keep commandments. There's earlier in the text, and we saw it in the verses, this is love. Keep God's commands. That's how we love God. It's a different word for keeping. That one has the idea of obey. This spouse has the idea of a military watchman, someone who would stand on the walls, all right? And they would scan the city and the horizon. And as sitting from that vantage point, they were looking out over the city and they would look out over the countryside to watch for any threats that were coming. And they'd have this posture. Their job was to alert the city if they saw trouble happening. He's saying, Keep yourselves. Guard, guard your hearts. Guard your minds. Guard yourselves as a community. Guard yourselves. Have that posture of being a watchman, of watching for the threats that are going to come in. And he points in a specific direction. Keep yourselves from idols. Watch the horizons of your lives. Watch the, the way the community is knit together. Watch for those idols that are going to come up, and they will come. Watch for those idols. Be on guard against them. John Calvin's helpful here. Because by now, some of us might be, well, what are idols? Most of us don't have a little statue in our home. <laughs> Most of us don't have a, a statue. We don't even, might not actually have even seen a physical idol somewhere. And John Calvin writes, and he says this about idols. For what is idolatry, if not this, to worship the gifts in place of the giver himself? Who? To worship the gifts in place of the giver himself. You know that word, keep yourselves, and that idea of standing watch, it has this idea of looking for an external threat. Something out there is going to get in, and we have to protect ourselves from the outside. And if we listen to what John Calvin's saying here, alongside the Apostle John, is it's actually, watch what's going on inside. When those blessings of God become possessions, 
and lead you to the point where you forget about God, be careful. It's not a new danger. It's actually an old danger. One of the things Moses said to the people of Israel right before they go to the promised land is when you've entered the promised land and you see all the bounty God has provided you and you taste that land flowing with milk and honey and you experience the wealth and riches of that place, do not forget the Lord your God. And he goes there because he knows that the gifts of God that God's people have such a long habit in history of taking those gifts and saying, oh, it's mine. It's mine now. I earned it. I, I deserve to have God bless me. We deserve for God to take care of us the way we want God to. We, we deserve to be healthy because, well, we're good people. And instead of receiving life as a blessing, from God and as a gift from God we take our eyes off the giver of that gift and we take those possessions and try to hold on to them as tight as we can as if somehow we've made them and earned them and deserved them John's saying that's where the enemy comes in he's redirecting the eyes and the focus of the people and saying it's not the Roman Empire that's your greatest enemy the greatest enemy will play with the gifts God gave you until they possess your heart. And once they possess your heart, you have no room left for God and for his grace. So in the context of John's letter, I'd like to give three invitations today, a threefold invitation. The first is this. Sisters and brothers, do not forget the Lord our God. Keep your eyes on him again and again and again. Learn to become like what the psalmist says in Psalm 1, people who meditate on the law of God day and night. People who, who take the law of God, the word of God, and, and who chew on it and gnaw on it like a dog gnawing on a bone, who say, I can't get enough of this. I need to keep coming back again and again because there's more marrow in God's life than I have yet been able to exhaust. Do not forget the Lord your God and all the blessings that he gives to you, all the suffering you may encounter. Do not forget the Lord your God. And the second is this. Give thanks for the good gifts God has given us. Over the last couple of years, I've read a lot of Ann Voskamp and Mary Jo Lady, who are, are two authors who focus on thanksgiving and gratitude. And they talk about how these postures are fundamental to our life as Christians, as people who have been created by God, that if we understand what it means to be created by God, to have our very lives given to us as a gift, our natural posture, our, our real posture, ought to be one of thanksgiving. That we go through life with joy and thanksgiving and celebration and being able to say, wasn't God good when? And instead of clinging to those things, we celebrate them with open hands to recognize God's goodness to us. We invite us to become a people who overflow with thanksgiving who take the time to name God's goodness to us. And finally this, 
I invite us to devote ourselves to prayer, eagerly waiting and watching for what God will do next. Part of what John's saying is, don't make an idol out of my words. <laughs> God's still working even after I'm gone. And God's still going to keep working among you and, and do things among you. And that's what John's saying to the church in Ephesus. And I would echo John here. As I leave, know this. God's going to continue to work among you. As I move on to the next place that God calls me into in service, and as our family moves to Michigan, know this, that God is already at work among you, and God will continue to do things, in fact, greater things than what we've already seen him do. That's God's posture. That's the way God works. And in that context, I invite you to eagerly devote yourselves to prayer as you wait and watch to see how God shows up and how he sends the Spirit among you to do more than what we have asked or imagined together. God is at work. Praise be to God. Let's pray. You, Lord, are more faithful than we, than we can comprehend. You are more present than we have recognized. You are more generous and gracious and lavish than we have been able to discover. You are abundance of love and faithfulness and goodness. And so I pray that, that whether in suffering or in times of plenty, whether in, in those places of trial and, and anxiety and uncertainty, or in those places where your will and your purposes are clear as day, you would bless this people. This that you would fill this congregation and community with your spirit. That you would work in their hearts that they may be devoted to you and to prayer and to, to listening to you. Together this they may discern your will and walk in your ways, full of thanksgiving for the ways, even the unexpected ways, that you show up. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.